Hi. How are you? I am really, really glad to be here. I love Chi Alpha. Uh, I love Josh and Katie. Josh needs medicine, <laughs> but, but I still love him, you know. Uh, I might love him more with medicine. Um, no, actually, I wouldn't. I would, or at least life wouldn't be as good, so, you know. Uh, no, Josh is amazing. Uh, and we all know who keeps the ship running in the right direction. Um, so, uh, this is... <laughs> uh, I, I love Chi Alpha for a variety of reasons. Um, and one of the reasons is the absolute amazing potential of people sitting in rooms when I come and talk to Chi Alpha students around the United States. But if you'll let me be direct, um, the potential I'm talking about is not the potential that your mother sees in all of you. Um, your mothers believe in you, obviously, and they've been telling you your entire life that you have potential and you could do anything you want to do. And of course, you know that that's not true. Um, you can do a lot of things. You have a tremendous amount of potential, but the kind of potential I'm talking about is a different kind. I really think you could change the world. I'm not being, that's not an over-exaggeration. If Jesus can talk to a group of ragtag fishermen and misfits and say to them, you know, take this gospel to the ends of the earth and they actually did it in a time when air travel didn't exist. I mean, think about what it took for Thomas, you know, if you know anything about the scripture, doubting Thomas, may we all be such doubters, to take the gospel from Galilee, that was, I'm from Georgia, that was the redneck part of Israel, you know, they, to, to go from Galilee to India, that blows my mind. I mean, this is a guy who's probably never been 30 miles from his home in his entire life, and he takes the gospel to India. So when I tell you you have that kind of potential, I absolutely positively mean it. You could be world-changing, Jesus-proclaiming, Holy Spirit-following, demon-fighting kind of people. Or you can be self-indulgent, self-centered, Christ alienating typical Americans. I don't fear that most of you will leave here and turn to a lifestyle of sin. That's not my greatest fear for you. My greatest fear for you is that you would graduate, that you would leave, that you would get jobs, and that you would spend of your rest, the rest of your life in pursuit of something is absolutely trivial as the American dream. Jesus died for so much more. So tonight, I want to unpack for you what God's plan is for the nations and how you might fit into that. Um, before I do that, I want to introduce you to my family, if that's all right. 
I think. There we go. Oh, I hate that. It makes me look whiter and shorter. Um, and I don't need help with either of those. Um, wow, thank you for whoever did that. Um, dang. Um, all right, so four kids and a daughter-in-law. The girl on the far right is my wonderful daughter, Noor. Uh, all of my kids have Arabic names. Um, we say when Jesus called us to the Middle East, he gave us a heart transplant. Because I learned a long time ago, you cannot win people you don't love. And people will sense very quickly if it's fake. And we genuinely love the Arab world and we love Arabs. And so um, we gave all of our kids Arabic names. Nur is the Arabic word for light. Jesus is referred to in scripture as Nur al-Alam, the light of the world. And if anybody happens to know anything about Jordanian history, you know the previous king's name was King Hussein and his wife's name was Queen Nur. So that's also who she's named after. She's an elementary school in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, she's an elementary school teacher in Alexandria, <laughs> Egypt. Uh, yeah, wow. Um, on the far left is our oldest son, Habib. You can tell he is quite the conformist. Um, he is an amazing young man, freakishly smart, um, and amazingly creative and talented. Uh, one day I remember he, we were having a conversation. He was about 16, and um, took him out to a local restaurant in Amman. And we were just having this, you know, father-son kind of time. And I said, so, you know, you're thinking about what you might want to do with your life. And, you know, he kind of gets this sheepish look on his face. And he's like, well, you know, I kind of like to be a musician. And I'm sitting there going, mm. you know, two things, you know, first of all, be a good dad, be a good dad, be a good dad. You know, don't let your face know what your brain is thinking right now. Um, you know, and I, so I want to support my son. The other side of it is <laughs> I don't want him living in my basement the rest of his life. Uh, so uh, the good news is he has actually found the one job that has less job security than a musician. He now wants to be a poet. Um, so, you know, uh, but he's married, so he's kind of her problem. Um, so, you know, actually he's a freakishly amazing writer and poet. He's won awards from the uh, Poet Laureate and um, getting ready to start an, MA, an MFA program. So anybody knows what that is, a Master of Fine Arts. And so um, we'd like to write and teach and he's an amazing young man, very proud of him. That's his wife next to him, Jennifer. Uh, she's a therapist. So uh, she's, uh, she's great. Um, she really is amazing. Uh, the guy next to him, her is our son, Nabil. Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you, Habib means beloved or the one I love. Yes, the other three children have inferiority complexes. Um, uh, so uh, then the son named there in the middle is Nabil. He is uh, a business, was a business major and now he is a sous chef. Thank you, that's where all my money went. Um, and so, uh, he's an amazing young man. Um, he is living in Laramie, Wyoming. Yeah, it snowed there today. I don't even get that, you know. Uh, but he is a great young man. Uh, Arab, uh, Nabil means noble, a person of noble character. And so uh, he has a girlfriend who lives in New York City, which I think is absolutely wonderful that he's in Laramie. Um, and so. Uh, then the guy on the far right is our uh, youngest son, Ahmad. Ahmad is a chemical engineering major at the University of Missouri. 
very, very smart also, and very, very far away from Jesus. And so um, if you happen to think about the Renfros at any point in your life and you want to pray for them, uh, obviously we always appreciate it when you pray for our lives, our family, our ministry, but if you prayed for him, you would really touch a father's heart. So, um, and then that amazing lady standing next to me, she is the love of my life. I had been married to her for 32 years and nothing makes me happier than walking around Sam's and holding her hand. And um, yeah, that's, that's who I love. She's the love of my life. I'm a better man because of her. Best thing Jesus ever did for me is he saved my soul and then he saved my life. And so I'm incredibly thankful uh, for her. She is incredibly competent. Uh, she actually leads our organization. I work for Assemblies of God World Missions as a missionary. Uh, she leads our efforts for all 2,800 missionaries to train them how to stay safe in difficult context. And then secondly, if they do have a problem, so like somebody gets kidnapped, they all have a phone number they're supposed to call and it's her phone. So she's that kind of person. She's an amazing woman and she's also a little bit naughty. I mean, like we went, we are recently at a, well, yeah, let's, let me clarify that. Okay. Um, you know, yeah, uh, you know, sorry. I forget I'm talking to college students. Yeah. You know. I mean, this morning I used the word hookup in a different kind of way, you know, but so it's like back up. Um, thank you guys. Uh, actually, this is the one moment where wearing a mask is beneficial because you can't see my red face. Um, so I have no idea where I was going. All right, my wife, yes. Um, we, I still did, I really have forgotten where I was going. She's naughty, yeah. Um, we were at an event, we are talking to people, and it's one of those things where, you know, you go to an event where you don't know people, and let's just, to set the context, I'm like one of the youngest people in the room. You know, so it's that, you know, and they're wanting to have people go around the table and do like this, you know, one of those icebreaker games. Anybody like those? Yes, exactly. There's one in every group, and, you know, um, no normal people like those, you know, and um, so they get over to my wife and the, the goal is we're supposed to tell two things about us that nobody knows other than maybe our spouse. And so they get to Amy, and this group's a very conservative group. And I mean, look at her. She looks like Betty Crocker. I mean, you know, she just doesn't, you know, she doesn't look naughty. I mean, she doesn't look like that kind of person. And she gets to get to her, and she, oh, what are you doing? And she goes, what's your two things? And Amy just looks at him, and she goes, I have a really large tattoo, and I carry a gun. And their mouths just fall open, you know. And then they look at me and they're like, okay, what's yours? And I'm like, I like women with really large tattoos who carry guns. Um, then I felt, did feel the need to say, uh, I like this woman who has a big tattoo and carry a gun because it was Missouri and it could have been taken as an invitation. Um, so, you know, uh, didn't want that to get me happen. So it's all right if we have a little bit of fun. I am absolutely convinced that the best apologetic in a culture that is highly suspicious of the Christian message 
is that we live both happy and holy. Now, they have to go together. Holy by itself is what the world thinks we are, and they don't think of holy in a good way. They think of holy as judgmental, self-righteous, condemning, all of those things. Of course, we don't think of it that way. We think of it as an effort to live in harmony with God's righteous commandments that are actually good for humankind. So we want to live holy lives, but we want to do so while demonstrating happiness. Now, happiness by itself isn't enough either. You can go to a football game at a a university football game and you can find happy, but it's alcohol-induced. And the next day, they won't be happy anymore. So we're talking about a happiness that is not temporary. It is joy expressed. And I really believe that if we can rightly bring those two things into harmony, we will be the most contagious force on the planet. Because I really believe that in our age, people are looking for the purpose that comes with holiness and they're looking for something that will actually fill that happy hole in their heart. And so that's what we want to be. And so I think it's really good that we laugh. So tonight I want us to look at Revelation chapter 5. And then we're going to jump back over to Luke chapter 9 and 10. Just a couple of verses. So if you will, you can... I'm not going to read a lot of the text because there's too much of it. If you actually were to go from like the middle of Revelation chapter 4, starting with like verse 6, um, you could go all the way through toward the end of Revelation chapter 5. So I'm going to kind of tell you the story and I'm going to encourage you to go back and read it personally at some point later tonight, maybe tomorrow, but spend some time reading it because I want to make a just sort of a just let this be known really quickly. I don't expect you to listen to or do anything with anything I say tonight if I am its source. Because at the end of the day, who gives a rip what Mark Renfro says or thinks? But if it lines up with God's word, then we actually do have to give an account for it. So if I say something tonight, I already have, that's silly or doesn't make sense or whatever, count that up to me and ignore it. But if it lines up with God's word, then we have a lordship issue. We sang several songs tonight that actually included the word Lord in them. One of my favorite writers is a guy's long since dead named A.W. Tozer. And Tozer used to say, Christians don't tell lies, they go to church and sing them. You know, we talk about Jesus as Lord, we sing about Jesus as Lord, and then think we can say no. If Jesus is Lord, There's only one appropriate response, and that's yes. So tonight, I'm going to ask you to say yes. Not yes to me, but yes to fulfilling whatever 
role you're supposed to play in God's eternal plan for the nations. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we get a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. God is, the Father is seated on the throne. He's not seen as this old guy with a big white beard. Instead, he's seen in righteousness and purity and holiness because it says that from the throne proceeded lightning and thunder. You know, this is not warm and fuzzy. This is power personified. This is righteousness and holiness to its max. This is not us running to the Father and asking him all of our questions. This is us fall on our face as though we were dead kind of experience. Around the throne, there are, we see mentioned in the book of Revelation, which is as apocalyptic literature, not to be taken, you know, it's figurative language. We see 24 elders. Those represent all of God's people, Old Testament, New Testament. So Old Covenant, Jewish people in the law, New Testament, the New Covenant, all those who've come to faith in Christ. We see represented all of those people around the throne. We see all living creatures. I mean, animals are there. You know, my mother-in-law is going to be very happy to know that there's going to be puppies in heaven. You know, um, I'm not sure she's going to be there, but her dog will be. Um, just kidding, just kidding. Um, I just hope she's at a different part. Um, no, <laughs> sorry, just really, really kidding. Um, so then we've got, I mean, so we've got all of this going on. Got this amazing scene. Revelation chapter 5 starts, and this voice comes, an angel declares that there's a scroll that needs to be opened. This scroll is supposed to contain all of God's activities, past, present, and future. And this angel cries out in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and who is worthy to break its seals? And there's an elder represents one of the 24 standing around the throne. And, you know, he's there with John the Revelator, one of Jesus' disciples. John's the one giving us this story. He's standing there figuratively. He's been transported in this vision. He's there. The elder says to him, don't worry. You know, because John's actually so upset that there's nobody worthy to open the scroll. He knows this is very important. He's so upset that he's actually weeping. The elder comes up to him and says, don't worry. You know, I, figuratively in my mind, I can see this, you know, older gentleman putting his hand on John and saying, it's okay, man. It's okay. Don't, don't cry. You don't need to cry. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, Anybody in here like to read C.S. Lewis? A few. I mean, I like Lewis. My favorite Lewis, I'm just going to be honest with you, it's Narnia. I mean, it's the Chronicles of Narnia. I, you know, I'd like to tell you it's the weight of glory or, you know, mere Christianity or anything. I'm in the children's books. I mean, I love the books. I love the movie. I love it all. I love the BBC series with the big stuffed, you know, odd-looking Aslan. I loved it all. I get this image every time I read this passage. 
says, behold, the Lamb of God. I get this Aslan-looking character in my brain. You know, in the movie, if you saw it, when Aslan roars, it's like everybody in front of him, you know, their hair blows back, and in fear, they, like, fall down. That's this image I get when, when it says, behold, the Lamb of God. If you read the text, it says John looks over to behold the lamb of, I mean, to behold the, this lion. Sorry, I've been I've given my point away. He says, look, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he looks over at the lion, he said, instead, he sees a lamb standing as though he's been slain. And we go on and read that the 24 elders and all of the living creatures and everything, they bow down and they say in a loud voice, worthy are you for you did purchase people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue under heaven. So we see that before the throne of God, every people group represented. 14,000. That's what we generally hear today. 14,000 ethno-socio-ethnic ethno, linguistic people groups. These are, if we're defining a people group in this context as the distance through which the gospel can travel until it reaches a geographic, ethnic, or linguistic cultural barrier. So how far can the gospel go until it, it has to go across a geographic boundary? Or how far can it go until it has to go across a linguistic barrier? Or how far can it go until it has to go across a cultural barrier that the gospel would not be understood? So when you define the world that way, there are roughly 14,000 people groups in the world. If we look at the world today, there's about 7,200 of those that have received an adequate gospel witness. Now that does not in any way mean that the majority of those populations have come to faith in Christ. But what it does mean is it means that there's enough local believers in that context that they could actually evangelize their people by themselves. So we would be one of those ethnic people, one of those people groups that has the ability, I mean, if you think about it, is the, you know, the culture in the South a little bit different than the culture in the Northeast, but not so different that the gospel couldn't travel across it. So you could literally take the gospel from Miami through the Northeast all the way over to secularized Seattle and Portland all the way down to California, you, you could cover America easily. And that's basically one general pe people group, not ethnic people group, but culturally we could, the gospel could travel across that. In our context, if you give me just a second to kind of get missiological with you, you know, like to explain missions for just a second, but it's all tied back to scripture here. We're going to tie it in. So if you think about like capital E with a subscript zero, so we're talking about E0, E1, E2, and E3 real quick. E stands for evangelism. So 
E0 is your church in your context. I hope every one of you is involved in a local church because as much as I love Chi Alpha, you can't stay here forever. You know, I know we'd like to, but one day you actually need to, you're going to be part of a local church, and I hope you're integrating in those as soon as you can as a local viable faith community. So let's imagine your home church, wherever you're from, that you found this home Christian community you're in. So E0 is attractional evangelism. So you're doing good worship, you're doing good preaching, you got kids programs, you got whatever you can get to invite people from the community to join your church, to come in and hear the gospel message. That's E0. Same culture, same geography, same language. Culture, church present in culture. E1 is that same church, but rather than inviting in, we're going out. Still, same geography, same culture, same language, but we're taking the gospel outside of the four walls of the church. We're doing outreaches in our community. Then we have E2 evangelism. Same geography, possibly same language, meaning same language, but it may be second language for some, but different culture. So this is people in our context, but people unlike us. So the easiest way I can think of that, and I can describe that, is think of the various ethnic communities that might be in your community. And you may think, well, there's not any real large ones. Well, there's Chinese restaurants, there's Thai restaurants, there's Vietnamese restaurants, there's Mediterranean restaurants, so you pick the whatever. Most of those are run by indigenous peoples of different kinds, and so they may, they probably do speak English, but it may not be their first language, and if it's a Thai restaurant, really high chances they're Buddhist. If it's a Middle Eastern restaurant, very high chances they're Muslim. If it's an Indian restaurant, very high chance it's Hindu. So this is E2 is us going out and purposely engaging with people unlike us for the sake of the gospel. That's great. Here's the problem. E3 is different geography, different culture, different language in which the church is not present. So the only way those people will receive the gospel message is if someone like you chooses to leave home culture, learn another language, learn another culture, so that people can have an opportunity to hear about Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Verse 1 of that, Jesus has sent out the 70 disciples, followers of him, not the 12 apostles, but the 70 that are following him. He sent them out two by two. Before he sends them out, he tells them, you need to pray for laborers to go into the harvest field. You heard Matt today talk about the need in the Northeast for Chi Alpha, that how many people there are that have never heard the gospel. He, you heard him talk about this fourth generation atheist. Here's, 
I mean, I hear that story and two, two emotions rise up within me. One hope that there's people in here that might actually resolve that problem. That Jesus might actually grab your heart and say, I want you to spend at least a year going and praying about a lifetime on another campus to plant. But maybe Jesus actually wants you to go and stay for a lifetime. You know, and, and see Jesus glorified on one of those campuses in the Northeast. And so there's hope, but there's also incredible frustration because that guy lived within the reach of the gospel. I mean, every, he could have and he should have heard the gospel. So should every one of his previous generations. The fact that he never actually had a gospel presentation had nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with us. But then transfer that student and don't think of him as an atheist living in the Northeast, but think of him as a Muslim living in Muscat, Oman on the Arabian Peninsula. I love Oman. It's one of the most beautiful countries I've ever been to. Any, anybody here a soccer fan? A few, okay. Some are like, hmm, hmm, hmm. You know, you know football, you know. The sport we actually play with our foot. Um, yeah. The Arabian Peninsula, man, they love football. Uh, one of the countries there that's just crazy about football and has the money to do just about everything related to it is the country of Qatar. Anybody ever heard of Doha, the capital? Doha is an amazing city. I mean, it's freakish. The country of Qatar is the wealthiest country in the world. It has the highest GDP of any country on the planet for local people. There's only one thing that supersedes Qatar's material wealth, and that's its spiritual poverty. Because even though it's the wealthiest country in the world materially, we know of four believers in the entire country that are Qatari. There are more than four Starbucks in one mall in Doha. It seems like Starbucks might have a bigger vision for its mission amongst in Qatar than the Church of Jesus Christ has for Jesus' mission in Qatar. I mean, after all, Jesus gave us the command to go into all the nations 2,000 years ago, and 6,800 people groups on the planet remain unengaged unreached beyond the access beyond access to the gospel so I want to wrap this up by giving you a very practical example so I can talk about 72,000 or 7200 reach people groups and 6800 unreached people groups I can I can give you all the statistics and those may or may not touch you. The truth is they tell us that less than 10% of people are moved by statistics. I happen to be one of those, but I just shows I'm weird. But let me put it in a 
context and in a rapid and a human cloak that all of us can get. So let's imagine that you live in the Northeast. Let's imagine you live in the far Northeast. So you live in like Maine, it's cold. It's the winter time and you've graduated from college, you've found a spouse, you're living in the Northeast, you're living in Maine, you've got a couple of little kids. One of them's name is Mikey. Yeah, sorry, I'm not real creative here. Um, Mikey's two, got way more energy than he's got wisdom. You know, just a typical toddler. Grandparents give you a call one day and they say, hey, we know it's really cold up there. It's miserable. The kids are stuck in the house. We want to pay for the family to go to Disney World. You're like, absolutely. So everybody gets on a plane, flies down to Orlando, gets out. It's a nice 82 degrees in the middle of January. Check into the Disney Hotel. You go to the Magic Kingdom. You do all those things. One afternoon, you decide to take a break. And you're going to just hang out by the pool. You're sitting around the pool. It's the middle of January. You're just in heaven. Little Mikey's running around the pool. It's America, so, you know, almost everybody there swims, knows how to swim. People are in the pool. Family members are in the pool. Mom and dad are in the pool. Grandparents are up on the side watching little Mikey run around. You know, they're just all having a blast. There's a one of those, what are those lifesaver rings, you know, hanging over here. So in case anybody gets in trouble, you can help. There's all of that going on. Little Mikey's on the deep end of the pool, running around the edge, gets a little bit too close to the edge and he falls in. Now he's two years old, doesn't know how to swim. Here's the question I have for you. Is Mikey at risk? Yes, he's absolutely at risk. But for Mikey, to drown would require every person around him being irresponsible, unethical, downright close to criminal. Now let me take you to another part of the world. It's not Mikey this time, it's Muhammad. Muhammad lives in northern Syria. And even though the Civil War is technically over, fighting still happens. Sociologists tell us they don't think Syria will ever exist like it did before 2011. Half of its people are internally or externally displaced and afraid to return home if their home even exists anymore. Mikey's family, or Muhammad's family has heard, Muhammad has heard nothing in his entire two-year-old life every day except the sound of his mother's voice and the sound of shelling. His parents decide we cannot take this anymore. We're leaving Syria. We're gonna pay a human trafficker to smuggle us in a boat out of Syria over to one of the Greek Isles because if we can get there, if we can get past the shore patrols and we can get to those Greek Isles, once we're there, they won't export us. They won't send us back to Syria and we can file for asylum. They're willing to do this because of their love for their son. But the problem is what they're doing is illegal. So the boats don't go out in the middle of the day. They go out at night. 
And the best nights are stormy nights when the moon is covered up. And there's waves and the shore patrols are not patrolling as well. They can't see as well. And that's the night they love to take people out. Well, unfortunately, because they're human traffickers, they're unethical. And because they're unethical, instead of selling 20 spots on a boat for 20, they sell 40. And they cram everybody on the boat. They start off across the water in the middle of this dark, stormy night. They're going as fast as they can so that they can get past the shore patrol. And they're going across these big waves. And in one of those, they hit. And when they hit, Muhammad and his mother flip off the edge of the boat in the middle of the night with an unethical pilot behind the helm of the boat. Let me ask you, what is Muhammad's chances of survival? To say it's anything beyond zero is a stretch. That's the distinction between being lost in America and being unreached in the Muslim world. Both are at risk, but there is someone there to save that one living in America. That's you. God has placed you where you are to be a light to the people around you, to every student on this campus, that you would listen to the voice of God and maybe he wants you to go out and to be an agent of his grace on a campus in the Northeast. And then maybe, just maybe, your whole life you have loved the idea of travel. And you love foreign food. And you actually like engaging with people not like yourself. Maybe, just maybe, those likes and those desires were actually God-planted inside of you because they are a seed to a burgeoning missionary career that might be spent sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ amongst the unreached. One day, according to this passage in Revelation chapter 5, there is going to be a party in heaven. And when they do, when we have this party, all of those 14,000 people groups are going to be there. But today, that map remains incomplete. That mosaic of God's people from all tribes and all nations is not complete. There are 6,800 people groups missing. Maybe God wants to use you to remedy the spiritual condition of a place like Doha, Qatar. Maybe he wants to use you to take the gospel to a place like Oman. There's a great missionary couple that live here in this area, Robbie and Sarah. They live in southern Oman. There's a people group there known as the Jabali people. Jabal means, Jabal means mountain in Arabic, so Jabali means like mountain folk. The, their language isn't even a written language. It's only a spoken language. A hundred thousand of them, and of a hundred thousand, we know of one believer. 
amongst them. It would be absolutely freakishly amazing to me if over the next week or 10 days, God would actually wake up several of you in the middle of the night, that he would wreck your sleep, not because you forgot about a term paper that was due, but because you realize that God would wake you up with the Jabali people on your mind. And that you take that as an opportunity to actually pray for them. That God, like said in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, that God would send laborers out into the harvest fields. That God would send laborers to the Jabali people. And at some point in that process, you might actually say, and God, while you're at it, if you want me to be the answer to my own prayer, I'm willing to do so. I'm not telling you this tonight because I'm a missionary. I'm a missionary tonight because of what I'm telling you. I've been doing it for 30 years. Has it been easy? No, <laughs> but it has all been good. Not good defined in a human perspective all the time. I mean, after all, Jesus said, whoever's gonna follow me needs to pick up their cross and follow me daily. So yes, I have had to pick up my cross and follow Jesus into the Arabic-speaking Muslim world. It hasn't always been easy, but it's always been good. When I define good, I'm not talking about what makes me comfortable, but what brings glory to Jesus. On a cloudy day, we walk outside, we look up at the sky, we don't see the clouds, and we don't see the sun, but we understand that on the other side of those clouds, the glory of the sun is there. Sin has clouded the glory of God amongst the unreached, and what God wants us to do is he wants us to go and be his agents that would proclaim the gospel so that he might actually part the clouds and that people amongst peoples like the Jabali would be able to see his glory. So tonight, I'm asking you to say yes. Not yes necessarily to going and serving amongst a, in a Kayafa in the Northeast or going to serve in a place in the Muslim world or amongst another unreached people group, but to say yes to doing your part, whatever God reveals as that. You sang tonight a song that said something about my heart. Give, what, was the, what were the words? You can have my heart. What does Jesus say? We know, how do we know where our heart is? Where your is, there your heart is. Where your treasure is, where your money is, that's where your heart is. Sorry, we love to sing that in an emotive way. Jesus made it very practical. Don't talk to me about where your heart is if it's not reflected in your bank statement. That's an indicator of where your heart is.
So one day, I'm looking around this room, and there's probably 60-ish people here, maybe a few more. There's a group of people, closing with this, I promise. There's a group of people, they were the most prolific mission-sending organization in the world. They were called the Moravian Church. They were founded by a guy with this coolest name ever, Count von Zinzendorf. He was a very wealthy man, was captured by God's glory and gave all of his money away. That's where his heart was. Now, God doesn't ask us, all of us to do that. He asked him and he obeyed. The Moravian church was phenomenal because for every nine people in the Moravian church, one of them went out as a foreign missionary. That's amazing. One out of nine. So in this room tonight, that means at least six of you are going to go out and spend your life, your career, seeing Jesus glorified amongst the unreached. But the other 88%, what they understood was they didn't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. They realized they had the exact same calling on their life. It was just expressed differently. They went, and we stayed, and we prayed like our lives depended on it, and we gave so that they can go. So that one day, you're going to send out missionaries to all parts of the world and to all parts of the Northeast, and the alumni that don't go are going to be the ones that send them for the glory of Jesus. Because you're going to understand that we're all in this together for the glory of God. That's what it's all about. So tonight, I ask you to say yes. Here's the cold reality, and if those of you who are going to take part in the worship would come back. In order to say yes to some things, the reality is, is we have to say no to some things. I am, you know, that, that picture made me nauseated today when they put that picture up. I was all stretched out like that, you know. I'm five foot six, you know. You know, inside I'm six foot five, but I'm five foot six, you know. And um, a few years ago, I had let my, I just busy, you know, when you do what I do, you're traveling around, you're seeing people, meeting people all the time. The joke is if we're meeting, we're eating. You know, and because of that, I'd let my weight creep up and I decided I wanted to lose some weight, get a little bit more healthy. It wasn't about weight, it was about being healthy. And so, I started exercising a lot more and I was really being disciplined and I lost a little bit of weight, but I was saying yes to the right things. I was saying yes to exercise, but I realized if I was actually gonna lose weight, I was gonna have to say no to ice cream. It's not enough for me to tell you you need to say yes to the right things without also telling you in order to do that, you're going to have to say no to the wrong things. So for some of you, that means saying no to the wrong relationship. It's going to mean saying no to some things that you do with your money that aren't sinful, they just aren't wise. 
so that you can say yes to being more generous. You're going to have to say yes, no to your plans for your future if you're going to say yes to God's plans for your future. Now, I have no, it's not my role to tell you what any of that is for you. But the Holy Spirit actually dwells inside of us. And He speaks to us. And He guides us and He directs us. And so tonight, I'm going to close in prayer. Worship team's going to lead us in a song. While they're, sing, pray, while they're playing, I'm going to ask that you not actually sing, but I'm actually going to ask that you take that time to dialogue with God about what your part is. And we're not looking for a lifetime obedience here tonight. What we're looking for is next steps. So whatever God lays on your heart that you're supposed to do, in relationship to seeing Jesus glorified amongst all peoples on the planet, then I'm going to ask that before the next, the weekend's over, before this week's over, that you would talk to somebody, maybe in your small group, because we all need accountability. Just talk to them about what God laid on your heart and what you feel you're supposed to do to see that happen. Now, one final thing. The best yes you can ever give is just a yes to Jesus. So I don't know, you may, this may be your first time tonight at Chi Alpha. Maybe you don't, you're not even a Jesus person. Maybe you don't know what the gospel is. Tonight we've talked about the result of the gospel going forth to all the peoples, but Jesus would really be glorified tonight. He would find his right place in the universe tonight if he found his right place in your heart tonight. So if you're here tonight and you've never made that step of becoming a Jesus follower, tonight's the best night ever to do that. You do that simply by crying out to God and saying, Lord, I cannot live a life that I know is pleasing to you by myself. But by your grace, by your merit, your favor, not my works, you would, through the cross, forgive me of my sins. I want to become your child. So tonight, if you haven't done that, I plead with you to say yes to Jesus. Father, I thank you for my friends here tonight. I thank you for your love and your mercy for them and for me. Lord, you're so good to us. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in the earth and in our lives. For your name's sake we pray, amen.